Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Jim Malak, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. It's, uh, it's going to be fun to be here. Be interesting. Uh, I guess we should start with a couple things. One is I just pronounced your name incorrectly, I believe. Everybody does. So, Everybody say does. it correctly. It's Jim Malak. I can't, I can't do that. I don't know what that is. You know, I can't say things with an American accent. I can't say the way you say garage. I just can't. I just... Uh, it seems I, wrong. I try, and I just, I just can't do it. House, eight, uh, you know, I can't do it the way you guys do it. There's a, there's a lot of words like that, I imagine. Yeah, uh, lots. And um, it's just... I've tried. Not deliberately. I've never tried to lose my accent. I, I love my accent. Your no, accent's amazing great. to most people, I imagine. Uh, but um, I've tried to moderate the the accents sometimes just to get across the significance mm. and i can't i i end up saying to one of the grandkids can you just please translate that to american for me especially in drive-thrus drive-thrus are a nightmare just they just well especially in alabama i imagine in alabama they just don't work just don't work all right i should also mention that you and i connected through your son who is named for you yes you go by jim he goes by jamie you're both formally james we are and there are now four of us because we've got my uh, i'm james jamie is james declan is actually james right and then jamesito is the new one so we have four generations of james malocks now which makes you a great grandfather great grandfather and you're not that old no no we started young and jamie started young yeah uh, so yeah we're um i'm probably one of the youngest great grandfathers around i would think especially when that when you out in you know the wilds in alabama there are probably a few but you know in civilized society yeah i'm probably one of the younger great grandfathers yeah. it's fun to be a great grandfather yeah i love it absolutely love it i was so happy when they told me it was great so you live in Alabama, but you're in Richmond, Virginia today because it's uh, Thanksgiving week and you're here to see at Jamie's family. house and a lot of family coming in. Not all of them, unfortunately. We have a tradition where um, we line up all the family on the stairs. My mum and dad started it. Oh, wow. So we started at their house when they were great grandparents and we would just get all the kids at Christmas. Oh, Christmas is our big thing, not Thanksgiving. Right, right. So we would line up um, all the kids, mum and dad, close to the bottom and all the different generations and spouses and, and that's, that's cool yeah so we, we did that at my parents house for years so when we became the sort of the um the senior people in the family we just continued that tradition and we do it all over the place we do it at weddings we do it at funerals anytime you're together anytime we're together we line as many of the family up as we can that's a great idea and the staircases and we just keep those pictures over the years well let me let me ask you this and as a way of comparison my f- i have Three first cousins, both sides of my family. Yeah. How, many, how many first cousins do you have? I have no idea. So many that you... Yeah. yeah. We've, I have no idea. There's, there's just... <laughs> there's so many like, of them you can't yeah, track. We, we don't know. Because yeah. <laughs> my mom is a family of... Um, see, I don't even know how many. She was about 10, 11 in her family. Wow. Um, and they spread out across the globe, so we lost contact with them. We have, we have no idea. We're extended family. We just don't know. That's amazing to me. Yeah. I know exactly where my three yeah, first cousins no, are. I don't know. How, how many siblings do you have? There were there were six of us. There, <coughs> there were actually seven, but um, one of the my, the second birth was um, twins, and my sister's sister twin died young. Mm. So there were six of us growing up. Yeah, two, and it was strange. My mum and dad had their first two shortly after they got married, although we do doubt that story at times. 
because they told us they got married twice once in the registry <laughs> they ran away they eloped <laughs> and they got married in the registry office and then being Irish Catholic they had to get married in a church as right, well right, right. but they had Vincent my older brother and then two years later they had Margaret and then there was a natural 10 year gap Oh my goodness! Because uh, there's no, they're Irish Catholics, you know, just post-war. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then four in a row, boom, 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 four in four years. Oh my gosh! And they thought they were done, and we all arrived one after the other, so we ended up with six in the family. What number are you? I'm second youngest. Okay. Strangely, my my wife Jacinta, her family is the same sequence. So it's boy, girl, 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 boy, girl in her family as well. She's oh the second gosh. oldest, I'm the second youngest. And the odds of that are like tiny. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's hard to fathom the, the, yeah. the math on that. Coincidentally, it's on, it's really coincidence. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, but it, yeah she couldn't be the second youngest because it was a boy in Indeed. her family. Yes. Yeah, 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 got it. Yeah, I, I, I'll have to share a quick funny story. My son... Um, because it's it's wild how that lines up. Just the fact that we're here together, yeah, that, that yeah. we're we're, a, we're from worlds apart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my son, uh, I'm six three. My wife is five two. My son's you just met him. He's six feet tall. He's a tall lad. Yeah. He's six feet. Yeah, he wants boy. he wants to be taller though. And I said you're fine at six feet, man. You're you're more than fine. He goes, Dad, if you would only... This is when he was nine, yeah. ten years old. He said, if you had only married a taller woman, I'd be taller. Oh, nice one, Mom. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, that's not how that works yeah, at all. Yeah, <laughs> don't let your mom hear you saying that. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't be here, buddy. Indeed, if, yeah. If I'd married a taller yeah. woman. Yeah. All right, so you grew up in Northern Ireland. Yeah. What was it like? And, and Belfast, like proper or Belfast metro? In Belfast. No, in Belfast, in, in, the, yeah. in the city. We lived in... Um, what we would call it a council estate. You'd probably call it Section 8 housing, maybe. Okay. Um, owned by the city, by the city council, and then they rent it out to people who can't afford to buy their own houses or to rent. So you grew up with them. government assistance, effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that worked, um, but um, the the social support was there for housing. Anyway, right. um, my dad was a barber. He was a okay. working class lad. My mom was a seamstress. She sewed shirts and stuff. For also a working class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much working class, and um, but. Um, my dad was bright. You know, he, he was injured during the war. He had a, his, the, he was hit by a bomb in the Clyde Bank. It was something called the Clyde Bank Blitz. Mm. There are books about it, but nobody outside the UK knows about it. And it was sort of a mistake. The, the Luftwaffe hit a town in Scotland where they did a lot of shipbuilding. Mm. And the theory is that they came over in moonlit nights aiming for the river and the shipyards just adjacent to the river. There's a theory that they mistook the rain on the Dumbarton Road in Clyde Bank for the river mm. and they bombed all the houses on the north of that road and my mum uh, dad was in one of those bomb shelters and the bomb shelters were useless his sister was killed by the blast ah. and she was holding him he almost lost his leg wow so he didn't go to school after that um, how old was he? 11 when that happened wow um, so he didn't get any education but he was really clever yeah you know Jamie's yeah. genetics don't come from you know, from nowhere. Um, so although he was working class, he was a barber and um, he was very, very well respected and to some small degree feared in our neighborhood. Uh, he's a big lad. Okay. And he's, he, D- he didn't smile a lot, maybe? No, he did. He was very jovial, yeah. But um, he big guy, you know, deep chest. He was he organized community events, dances and socials and things like that. 
Um, we were one of the few people that ever had a car. They were always hand-me-downs. His mm -hmm. mates would give him a car because we couldn't afford to buy one in the, in the area. So he was well-respected there, even though he's you know, a working-class man. We, we had no money. We had no money growing up. He sounds like he was uh, well-known. In, he in was, everybody knew my dad, yes, because he was a barber. Oh, yeah. uh, a lot of people come in, yeah, so everybody knew him. And um, at one point, a little bit later on, I was about 15 years old. We lived in rough places. This was later on after all the troubles that happened. And um, I commented to one of my mates one day, say, it was a rough place we lived in, so there's people fighting all the time. And I, fighting was just normal. So. Yeah, and at that point, I had given up the fight, and I never got into that stuff at that point. But usually it would find you. And I asked one of my friends one day, well, how come you guys are always in trouble and nobody ever bothers me? And he looked at me like it was an idiot and he went, you're Vince's son. I went, so? He went, nobody's gonna fuck with you. You're Vince's son. I went, oh, that's good to know. It's great to know. Yeah, so yeah, it was just liberating. You had this yeah. silent protection around Indeed. you all the time. And didn't have to do anything. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the troubles. Uh, I think Jamie, when I recorded it with Jamie, he tried to describe the Troubles, but I have a feeling you can describe it better because you were alive during the Troubles. Yeah, we were, we lived, me and my immediate siblings lived through the worst of it. And um, it all went to hell in the handbasket and after this civil unrest that resulted from the um, protests. And really it was about civil rights. Mm. Historically, you look back and you see that what was happening in Ireland in the 60s, and it wasn't the first time, but it really came to a head in the 60s. It really mirrored and was inspired by some of the civil rights movements here. Oh. Um, we didn't have one man, one vote growing up. Um, you got a vote for your household. You got a vote if you owned a business, you owned the property that was the business. And it was deliberately slanted to keep the, the, the Irish Republican nationalist community down. And um, that was just the reality of it. So. Catholics breed faster than Protestants. That, that's just a fact. If you ever see um, The Meaning of Life, Monty Python, right. there's a scene in that that depicts it beautifully. Okay. And it's a Protestant family on one side of the street and a Catholic family on the other, street, other side of the street. And the Catholic family are knocking out babies all over the place. And the Protestant family on the other side, the wife's saying to the husband, you know, how do they have so many children? And he said, well, they don't use contraception. They have a child every time they have sex. And she says to him, so why do we only have two then? And he went, well, yes, that's why we only have two. <laughs> <laughs> that led to um, the, the political structure in Northern Ireland then was that a family of six adults, Catholic adults, would live in one house. They had one vote. That seems crazy to an American. It does, but that's the political reality in the 60s. So the, uh, the protest movement there was peaceful when it started, mm. and it really just wanted access to housing because access to housing was discriminatory. It was legal for the major, well, for any employer to say, we'll, we'll not hire you because they're Catholic. So um, there was nothing wrong with that. That was entirely legal. So Catholics couldn't work in the shipyards. Based on your work. religious beliefs? You... Just your name would be enough. Wow. But yes, because there's a strong link. There are myriad of ways for anybody in Northern Ireland to tell if you're a Catholic or a Protestant, still to this day. So... If your school you went to, the football team you support, the bars you drink in, your name would tell you. And then they just, you just couldn't get hired. You know? Did you have Protestant friends growing up? Oh, yeah, yeah. We had no issue. Uh, we lived in a Protestant community. Ah. And there was no, it wasn't an issue at all until 70, 71. 
mm. when it all turned. And um, that, that was actually the saddest thing about it for us as kids, and particularly for my mum and dad, especially my mum. When it all went bad, the people that we grew up with, shared our houses with, went to the beach on Sunday with. I said, we were the only people in the street that had a car. It was a hand-me-down, broken-down car. You had to push start every day. But you had a car. But we could have a car. Um, There were no seatbelts and the like in those days. So we would take all the local kids to the beach. And we were the only Catholics. All of my friends. There was another one, Michael O'Neill, was a Catholic, lived four doors down from us. Everybody else was present, right? <laughs> um, but when we would go out to go to the beach on a Sunday, as soon as the kids saw us coming out, they'd come running down the street and just pile into the car. My dad used to take the neighbours to work in the morning. And when it all went bad, for us that was the worst aspect. They all turned on us. That we'd known our whole lives. And not only known, but had been you'd supported them. Yeah, uh, the worst one was my sister was a trainee nurse so we used to get the paramilitaries would pull up at the door you get uh, what you call a pantechnican it's a big furniture truck you would call it okay and um it would be late at night and the truck would pull up outside the door they put the ramp down and then the paramilitaries in their uniforms and their bandanas would come marching out of the truck and come down our path line up either side banging the door and tell you get out of the house we want your house you have to leave and um, we would have to restrain my dad. You know, we would literally be hanging on to him because he would go to confront them at the door. Um, and we were worried he'd get shot, of course. So what we had to do was we would send my sister out in her nurse's uniform because they won't, none of the paramilitaries would, turn, would touch the nurses because they know that they have to go to hospital for treatment when they get hurt. Right. Medical staff were off limits, so they wouldn't touch them. So she, we didn't have a phone, of course. So she would leave. She'd have to walk the gauntlet through the paramilitaries and they would spit on her and shout at her and the like, but they wouldn't touch her. And she went down the street one day to um, Harry Truman's house. He was a present friend of ours. And his name was Harry Truman. Harry Truman, wasn't he? And, oh yeah, that's an American thing, isn't it? Oh yeah, sorry, I didn't even make that connection American, until American, you said that. American president of the 40s. Dang, <laughs> that's freaky. Um, yeah. And that lady, my dad used to take her, drop her at her, her work every morning because she didn't have a car and she was on the way. And he'd pick her up on the way back. Margaret walked down to our house and house and said, Mrs. Truman, can we please phone the police because we're under siege again? And she just said to her, fuck off and get away from my door, you fiend bitch. Don't ever come back again. And she came back to the house in tears, just crying her eyes out that this woman had said that to her. And that that was one of the worst moments. The listening audience can't see my face, but my jaws drop. I, it, yeah, I know it, it's horrifying. It's shocking. All because of uh, religious beliefs. Yeah, yeah, because well, of the religious split. I mean, that's not the only part of the world that has has Protestants and Catholics. What is it about that part of the world that makes it, at least back then, such a, a an awful rivalry of sorts? It's a result of the Scots migration. Well. Uh, Goes back to 1690, right? Goes back before that. Okay. And King James II and the rivalry for the British throne. Um, there was always, when King Henry VIII split off and created the the, Eng- the Church of England, Protestant Church. The, the Anglicans. And yeah. um, 
it all stems back to way back to that. Okay. But the English invaded Ireland, took control of all of Ireland, of course, and then they suppressed Irish language, Irish culture. Mm. There's a song called "The Wearing of the Green" that we sang growing up, because it was illegal to wear green, because it symbolised Ireland. So um, St Patrick's Day, you all aware of the shamrock? Sure. I've got, I've got it tattooed on my chest. <laughs> um, well, it's actually a four-leaf clover that represents Celtic, but it's the same thing. Um, the English suppressed all of Irish culture that way and made it illegal to wear green. So on St. Patrick's Day, we all wore shamrocks mm. in our lapels as a defiant gesture against yeah, yeah. that. So when the Ireland split back in the Civil War, 1916 was the Easter Rising, when it was the latest of the series of rebellions against the British. It resulted in, in um, the, an agreement to split Ireland into two. Mm. Because in the north, um, in, in this, just the six counties in the north, there was a mainly Protestant population that had been put in place by the British, mm. given the land, given the properties, given the jobs. Industry grew up in the north, but not in the south. The south was still rural. I mean, the British landowners still owned all the land in the south. Mm. Um, but that agreement caused the state of error of uh, the Republic of Ireland to be created, 26 counties in the south. Those six counties in the north um, were left. And if you've ever seen the film Michael Collins, I've, I've heard of it. I've that, seen it. That tells that tale because they, he negotiated that agreement with the British to get some independence for Ireland. And that resulted in civil war in Ireland because there was a faction of the Republicans didn't agree that they should have given any counties to the UK. Mm. But it, that's what resulted. Northern Ireland, mostly Protestant, about two to one, Protestant to Catholic. And in the south, almost exclusively Catholic. And that's what caused the tension in the north of Ireland between the Catholics and the Protestants. Mm. Because um, the community there remained split, um, divided by separate schools, separate churches. To this day? Yes, to this day. It's not as bad as it was, but it's still there. And then, because of all the discrimination, that's what led to all the tension between Catholic and Protestants. Wow. That was a very concise explanation. I, it's condensed in 400 years of history. <laughs> no, you did a nice job with that. that yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I don't think many Americans even know that history, even those that are Irish descent. No, they don't know. It's it's too far in the past and it's too distant, I suppose. Yeah. What I found out recently, actually, and it was all exacerbated back in the mid-1800s by the potato famine. Um and that was an, a construct that was deliberately created. Well, it wasn't deliberately created, but the English allowed it to happen for economic reasons. Mm. And there was plenty of food in Ireland, but it was all exported. And the Brits owned it all. They, owned, they managed it all. And the British Parliament just let it go. So that was a big thing to us growing up. We all knew what Black 47 was. It was 1847 when the worst of all the deaths happened. That's what caused almost all the migration of America, of Irish to yeah. America. Yeah. They had to do something. Yeah, they died and people died with green stains around their mouth because they were trying to eat grass. It was really awful. Oh. And every, the British in par knew of it, but um, they didn't spread that word. Uh, and they tried to minimize the impact on the general population in, the, in Britain, mainly in England, by depicting the Irish as subhuman. So have you heard of a magazine called Punch Magazine? Mm -mm. Famous magazine that was in existence until fairly recently in the UK. Punch Magazine would depict the Irish in cartoons as simian creatures with bent over dragon knuckles and prominent jaws, the wee ape-like. And they wanted to promote the idea that it was okay to treat Irish people 
inhumanely because they weren't really human. Completely fabricated. Uh, yeah, yeah, all fabricated, of course. Yeah, which I mean, even in my generation, the idea that Irish people were stupid persisted, and it's still there in England. You know, the thick paddies because they're labourers, and, and it was all deliberately done so that when they mistreated Ireland as a nation, that English people wouldn't feel bad about it because they weren't really humans, and it's okay to treat them that way. That's an awful history. It, it's terrible. It really is awful. Thankfully, that all disappeared. All that stuff disappeared with modern communications and uh, migration. But still, even when I went to England, people still came up with a, you know, you're a thick paddy thing. Fortunately, I wasn't a thick paddy and it wasn't that hard to put people down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it still happened as recently as the 80s in in England. I was talking to a uh, woman who is a, owns a bar here in Richmond. She's Irish. The bar, yeah. bar's name is Rosie Connolly. Um, and she said, and she her first eight years of life, she lived in Liverpool because yeah. um, I think her dad migrated from Ireland to Liverpool. Yeah. And they lived there for a while and then eventually made it to the States 30 years ago. Anyway, she said, do you know what the cap- capital of Ireland is? And she's saying this as an Irish descent person. Uh, I said, I, I, I made a couple of guesses. She goes, no, 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 it's Liverpool. It's Liverpool. Yeah. yeah. And it's because of the potato famine and when they were Going over the Irish Sea. That's where you land. You go to from, Liverpool. Yeah. It, it was the weather was not always calm. The sea was yeah. not always calm. And they were like, the Irish Sea is nowhere near the size of the Atlantic Ocean. I can't imagine doing that for that long of a journey. So yeah. a lot of Irish just stayed in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been on that Bel- that Liverpool ferry, and when um, it's been rough, and every single person on the boat thrown up. Oh, yeah. it's rough. Why is that that sea so rough? I don't know. I don't know why it is, but yeah. it's it's bad. But, you know, things are a lot better now, you know, and um, the animosities diminished. I was going to get to the series Victoria. Mm-hmm. Was, you've probably seen some of that Victoria series. Yeah. It came to light when that's, that series was broadcast in England and Scotland. The newspapers and the TV channels started getting um, letters and communications from English people saying, what's this about a famine in Ireland? Because... They had never heard of it because nobody in the UK teaches that the English were responsible for a famine in Ireland in the 1800s. That blew my mind. 170 years later. The people in England don't know. And that series, Victoria, was responsible for bringing that to the public attention in England and Scotland Wales. That's unbelievable. That's horrifying. It's horrifying. That, that happens in this country too. Yeah, we're, we're victors. History is written by the victors. That's what happens. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a that's a meaningful and real saying. Yeah. Whereas we grew up in the atmosphere of Republican songs on the record player, we knew all that—the dirges, the sadness, and you know the hilarity of it, and the war songs, and the re- we called them rebel songs. That's what we called them. Different meaning to what it is over here, but we call them rebels. It's funny, Republican means something entirely different in Ireland than yes. what it does here. Yeah. And rebel means something entirely different in Ireland than what it means here. I'm learning a lot. You're uh, you're actually blowing my mind a little bit, Jim. Yeah. People don't know this stuff. but So we grew up in that. It all came to hell ahead in 72. And the next 20 years were bad. Mm. They were bad. And you were... I mean, you were a teenager into your 20s during that time. Well, I left Ireland at 17, actually. Okay. And I went back constantly, but never lived there. But still, you had to deal with the 
you know the day-to-day what religion are you son and you still had to deal with that you know and i get into fights over that did you leave at 17 because of the troubles no i went to university in england believe it or not okay um were there a lot of irish at at your school no it was um strange experience for me i went to cambridge university which was um not really my thing You mean school in general, or do you mean... No, the, the whole idea of that elite English establishment uh, with, you know... Yeah, because you had years, not experienced anything like that. Nothing at all. And um, I didn't mean to go to Cambridge. It was a series of unfortunate events, you might say, <laughs> uh, that I ended up there. I wanted to go to London, actually. But um, I ended up at Christ College, Cambridge, among all the hoity-toity English people. And they knew you were Irish. Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's, I wore an iron sweater for my... You know, <laughs> uh, there's, there's no hiding it and no intention to hide it. And it was a lovely place. I, mean, I must admit, the place was absolutely lovely and I had a great time there. You were treated well. Yes, they were lovely, yeah. yeah. I, you know, most of my friends are English. You know, all of this is historical stuff. It's all right, gone, right. you know. But I got loads of mates that are English and, uh, and uh, we'd lived there for many years and we enjoyed it. It was good. Because... Uh, English people don't dislike the Irish and English people didn't ordinary English people didn't impose those conditions on the Irish people. It was the powerful elite. It was the people in the power. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, I uh I think I don't know whether to stay in your first 31 years of living in the United Kingdom or to go beyond that now. Well, let's let's go uh you're 31 and you decide I guess you decided to move to America. Well, you tell me the story. How did you end up in America? We were living in a place called Horsham, just south of London. Um, By that time, I was a software engineer. I was a software development lead, I think. Reasonable career. Because we started, we had first kids at 18, right? So Jamie was born when we were 18 years old. Both of us were 18. Which meant we grew up absolutely broke and loving it. It was great. Didn't have no issue with that. And no, Jamie, Jamie didn't know any better. No, he didn't know any better, and I didn't care. You know, we did. We didn't really didn't care. We uh, we just made our way through. Um, so having no money wasn't a big deal. We still we we hitchhiked to Europe if we wanted to go on holiday. We just thumb you know. I taught my mum to hitchhike when I was twelve years old. <laughs> you know, we did what we had to do, but still had fun. So at thirty, Jacinta. Sint, we call her Sint. Sint was um, employed as a management accountant or financial manager, a European financial manager for an American company, making decent money. She just got her first company car, first anything like a new car we had ever owned. You know, we always had old classic cars. I bought classic cars to drive around in every day. Um, I was doing reasonably well in my career. We had two kids. Connor had come along. He was um, six. Jamie was 13. Is that what it is? He was seven, Jimmy was 13. We were thinking about having another kid and we thought we were in a wee two-bedroom Victoria flat, Victorian flat. It was little. The boys shared a bedroom mm. and we thought, okay, we'll have to buy a bigger house. When we looked at buying a bigger house in the south of England, we realised that we would be going back to being broke again. Mm. And we'd been to Florida a couple of times. Of course, that was our exposure to America, that and TV and movies. Um, so you got Southern California and Florida. I know, yeah, and it wasn't really representative. <laughs> um, but we started thinking about the idea to come over because my sister lived in America. I think I had two sisters lived in America at the time. We'd been over a couple of times, big cars, big houses, you know, fast food that cost nothing. 
you know, that was all new to us. So we um, applied for green cards in a lottery. We applied 500 times for green cards. 500? You know, all at the one time. So you, there was a lottery. It was sponsored by an Irish senator who somehow managed to convince Congress that Irish people were underrepresented in America. He's mm. a bloody magician. <laughs> so there were 40,000 <coughs> green cards issued that year globally. And I think it was 24,000 went to Irish people. Wow. Magician indeed. Indeed. So the rules were you just had to send an application and it was, it was nothing to it. It was one piece of um, what turned out to be not A4. A4 is paper size in the UK. Whatever. Is it legal? No, not legal. Legal is 8.5 by 17. 8.5 eight by 11. American size paper in an yeah. envelope to a specific address in Virginia somewhere. And it had to arrive within a period of a week. But you could do as many as you liked. Mm. So we submitted 500. We had a contact uh, in Germany that bought us like 300 American stamps. We had somebody going to America the previous week who what, carried What those. year was this? That was 92. 92, okay. Um, who was coming over here. And we posted some internationally. We posted a whole bunch from America. 500 applications and one got drawn. So we got our green cards. Done deal. For the family. For the whole family, yeah. yeah. And uh, we just... I had 17 days off work contiguous not 17 days split over five days yeah and um, i came over here set up some interviews in florida and happened to speak to a company that i knew of in my business civil engineering software who were based in huntsville alabama and i spoke to that guy not not to consider a job at his company but for contacts that i could talk to in the mm -hmm. civil engineering software arena and he saw my resume, he said, you need to come to Huntsville, Alabama and work for us. And I said, I'm not going to Hicksville, Alabama for anybody. <laughs> and he quite sincerely said, no, I didn't say Hicksville. I said, Huntsville. I said, no, I heard you the first time <laughs> and I'm still not going. <laughs> but he, I was here. I'd been here 14 days, still hadn't got a firm offer of a job. And he called me up at my sister's house and he said, look, we've booked you a flight. We've booked you a car. We've booked you a hotel. Just go to the airport. Come see us tomorrow. So we did. And I end up in Huntsville, Alabama. And you're still there. I promised my wife, we'll only be there two years. We'll use it as a base and we'll go drive around the south, drive around, fly to various cities in America, see where we like, and I'll apply for another job. And we'll go live wherever we want. Okay. And that was 30... And you're still there. Still there. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm fascinated. A guy that lived in Northern Ireland and England and Scotland for a period. Scotland. Uh, how did you come by thinking of Alabama as Hicksville? Um, just the depiction in films and TV. You know, what do you call the guys? What you... Victor's right of history, right? Yeah. The South was not writing a lot of Indeed. history for a yeah. period. Yeah. yeah, that was the only impression we had. Was that still happens? Yeah. It's wrong completely. Huntsville is not Hicksville. Oh, no. They're brilliant people it's that live across amazing. that part of the world. It's amazing. It's an amazing place. Yeah. yeah. Well, Huntsville also has uh, a lot of NASA people. Yeah. It's known as Rocket City. Yeah. yeah. It's more PhDs per capita than just about anywhere in the world. It's amazing. It's Yeah, they're geniuses yeah, yeah, yeah. there. People have have um, bumper stickers saying, yeah, I actually am a rocket scientist. <laughs> you know, so. There's so many of them, they created yeah. bumper stickers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Uh, let, let's, well, since we mentioned Scotland, let's go back to Scotland. Uh, how long were you there and what ages were you? Well, we moved over there. Um, 
as my daughter's fond of pointing out, and I had never thought of this until she said it, and I argued and lost because she's determined. We moved over there essentially as refugees because we were fleeing that. My dad had lost his business before we got put out of our house. His mm. his shop barber smashed up his he smashed up his premises multiple times because he was Catholic. He was Catholic, and he had tried for years to suppress that knowledge. We were taught, we were drilled when we went to my dad's shop. When they ask you the questions, just smile and say nothing, just giggle and laugh. And we were told all the questions. You can't answer your favourite colour, your football team, what school you go to, what church you go to, how you say the letter H, where your parents grew up, all of those things. We knew what questions not to answer. And I was sitting in my dad's shop one day and this guy was grilling me. And I remember just giving him the giggles and the laughs every time. And then he asks, what are you going to be when you grow up? That wasn't one that we were taught not to answer. So I answered that one. I said, oh, I want to be a priest. Mm. And my dad's head just snapped around and looked at me. And I'm going, what? And the guy got up and just walked straight out. And my dad ripped into me. What the f did you say? And I didn't know. What, what? I didn't know that saying a priest would give away your religion. Because I thought everybody was yeah, right. a priest. So he lost his business there, and then we got put out of the house. Do you think it was directly because of that interaction you had with that guy? No, it, it, I don't know. It wasn't that long after, to be honest. <laughs> but it could be. But um, it was the escalation of the troubles at that point. Mm. And then one day, a guy came running in, and he'd been rebuilding his shop for weeks on end. And a guy came running into his shop one day, and he said, Vince, they're coming for you tonight. They're not coming to wreck your shop. They're coming for you. You've got to go or you want to get shot. Wow. And so he said, all right, I've got to go. And he shut up his shop and he left and he never went back. That was it. So then a few weeks later, the same thing happened at home and we got put out of our house. And we went to Scotland probably two days later. We went and stayed with my sister in her shared accommodation because she was a student nurse. Mm. All of us piled into her little house, but we couldn't stay there. So we went to my grandmother's house in Scotland the following day. Wow. And just lived in her two-bedroom house until we could go into more council housing in Scotland. And um, that was rough, but we loved it. Yeah. It was rough for my mum because it was a very, um, a really rough area. So you, know, you learn to run and you learn to fight and you learn to decide which one to do at any particular moment. But as children, we loved it. We had a blast. We ran wild. Um, but my parents were really worried about it because we were running wild. Yeah, you know, in a very rough place. I, so when you think of when I think of the United Kingdom and go back sixty years, I don't think there are refugees that exist, but they clearly did. You yeah, but we didn't think of it like that. Honestly, that I, that I never even used that word in connection with what happened to us until my daughter told said this to me. No, yeah. I don't know, ten years ago. She brought that up. She's, te know. she's technically right. She's technically correct. I'm going, we weren't refugees. We just moved to Scotland. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, why did you move to Scotland? Because we got put out of our house. She was, yeah, you're a refugee. Yeah. yeah. You moved... Uh, Under not, duress. Not by choice. In the back of a police Land Rover, in her pajamas, with a dog and the budgie. That's a crazy story. Yeah. And my dad actually went back the following day. And he... My dad was a hard man. He was defiant. We literally stood at the door and watched them argue with one of these paramilitary guys saying, you've got to go. He said, you, and he said, Vincent, you can't fight all of us. And my dad said to him, no, I know I can't, 
but I'll kill the first three of you that come through the door. So who wants to be first? And they turned to each other and went, you go first. And went, I'm not going first. And they went, we'll be back. And they left. Wow. So he went back and he arranged for one of his contacts. Turned out to be um, an IRA man from the markets area in Belfast, but he knew this guy, to arrive with a furniture truck the following day with some protection, which meant you know, guns to protect them. Yeah, yeah. So that we could get our, at least get some of our belongings out of the house and move them to Scotland with us. And the guy didn't show up because he was arrested for a suspected murder the day that he was supposed to arrive. So my dad couldn't do anything. Well, suspected terrorist activity. Um, he couldn't do anything. So he had to, he just took an axe to everything that was there. And he just destroyed everything in the house and took a whole st lot of stuff out the backyard, set fire to it. So the people that took our house wouldn't get the benefit of what they had put into it over the years. So you took nothing with you to Scotland? Well, whatever we could carry in our hands. Wow. Took, yeah. what, do you remember what you carried? I only remember the animals, actually, bringing the dog, the dog and the budgie. That's it. I don't remember anything else. Wow. Don't remember. Have you thought about writing a book? My sister has, actually. Um, I don't have the memory for it. Mm. She's got the detailed memory. Because the... Yeah, there's so much happened, you know, with the stuff we did in Scotland. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, the stupid stuff we did. It's amazing. I have a colleague that works with me. Her name's Jen. She's one of my staff. I only found out after she'd been working with me for a few years, she had been telling everybody that she, that she knew that her boss was a pathological liar. And she'd spent quite a bit of time with me driving back and forth with the venues and the like. So... Finally, she got to meet Sint. So she started asking Sint, my wife, about the stories that I had just told her in passing. And Sint would, of course, back him all up. Yeah, yeah, I was there when that happened. And yeah, that happened to him. So she came to me one day and she said, I have to apologize to you. She said, I thought you were blowing smoke up my ass all these years with all this incredible stuff you've been telling me about your life. Said, Turns out it's all true. <laughs> it's just different. Yeah, well, it's not expected. Right? No, it's not normal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the fact that you ended up at uh, Cambridge. I know. Yeah. Tell that story. How did you end up at Cambridge? Well, I say it was not deliberate. I had no intention of going to Cambridge, but it was an Irish Catholic school that we were very focused on academics. The Irish Catholic system's very focused on academics. So we didn't do anything that wasn't directly related to getting good academic qualifications. We played football. We, had, we didn't have a gym. We, we, For the Americans listening to this, he's talking about soccer. Oh, yeah, we played soccer, yeah. <laughs> um, the school I went to was a new Catholic school. We had little huts we changed in, and we didn't have a gym, you know, nothing like that. But um, So it was all academic-focused, and it was run by priests. And I didn't know it, but I came into the school with a, an academic distinction that I was unaware of. I didn't realize it. But all the teachers knew about it. Mm. And um, I, I was a bright kid, but I didn't know how bright I was because nobody told you this stuff. Um, so school was great. I got to do whatever I liked. When we got kicked out, I we left and didn't know. The school didn't know. We didn't have any time, so we just went. I just disappeared. I just didn't show up for school the next year. Right. right. So school in Scotland... There's loads of stories behind that. Just getting into school in Scotland, that's a good story. But ended up with a, into a comprehensive school in Scotland. where there was Co Comprehensive meaning they funneled 
bright kids. No, exactly the opposite. Everybody oh. was put into a class regardless of your intellectual capability or academic ability. So I'd been in a grammar school in the highest stream and doing heavy academics, 14 subjects mm. for a year. And I'd started early and that was part of the problem. I was only 10 when I went there. When I went to Scotland, they wanted to put me back into primary school. Oh, wow. And I, had a, I personally fought with the headmaster at the primary school to the point where he gave up and just said, I don't want to deal with you. You can go to, and you can go to comprehensive school if you like. So I went there and it was still awful. Mm. And I got into so much trouble. And um, at 11, and I'd have been 12 then, I decided I needed to go back to Ireland. So um, I convinced the family to let me go back to Ireland on my own. At 12? I was 12. It was 11. I might have been 11. No, I was 12. I was 12. And, um, still young. Yeah, still young. And I was back over there with my mum on holiday that led up to this. And I happened to meet my form teacher from my first year at school. In, not even in Belfast, but in Lisburn, you know, miles away from her. But we were just on holiday. And he asked me what it was going, what like in Scotland. And I told him how awful it was. And he said, you need to come back home and go to school. And he told me then that I had, um, and I didn't know this. He said, we're not supposed to tell you. He said, but you had the distinction of having the highest entrance exam score in Northern Ireland in the 11 plus. It was an exam you did to determine if you went into grammar school. Or First one, the highest ever? The highest, well... Yeah, because it was actually 100%. It was 240 out of 240 questions. So no, no, I understand where Jamie got his So you can't from. get any higher. Um, but they don't tell you this stuff. They're not supposed to tell the kids. But he told me this to give me the incentive to come back to the school. And um, so that's what the catalyst was for me convincing my family to let me go back to Belfast. And I went back and lived with my aunt in Belfast. And I went back in, skipped the year, and went back in and joined the guys that I'd been with in my first year. Yeah. And then spent the first term catching up. So yeah, um, I ended up being at that school and treated with kid gloves. But I didn't know this, that that's where it was happening. Anyway, school was great. Academic. Kid gloves because of the aptitude score? Yes. Okay. So they let me do pretty much whatever I wanted. Wow. And one of the things they wanted me to do was to go to Oxford or Cambridge. Oh. And we were part of a, a fairly elite group of academics in my class, and it was really unheard of. They were good lads, you know, normal kids, a bit like Jamie, you know, athletic. We all played football, but they were all really freaking clever. Yeah. Um, so they were just constantly grooming us. You've got to get the scores. You got to. So they submitted us for the Oxford and Cambridge entrance exam, and there were, um, I don't know, a dozen of us submitted for it which meant you had to go for an interview, interview to Oxford or Cambridge, depending on which one you wanted to go to. And um, I would still have been 16, I think, when I went over for my interview. Mm. My sister came with me. She was the responsible one. She made me cut my hair and stuff to go in for the interview. Um, I went in for the interview and it went well. You did, you did an engineering-specific one and then you talked to the master of the college. And I had already been to King's College London to be interviewed and loved the place and I was going there so I didn't give a flying fuck what happened <laughs> at the Cambridge interview <laughs> I just didn't care and the master of the college he um, did the interview and then he said well good luck on the entrance exam and I went sorry what and he went good luck with the entrance exam and I went I'm not doing your entrance exam 
And he went, sorry, what? I went, I'm not doing your entrance exam. He said, you know you have to do the entrance exam to come to Cambridge. And I went, if you really want me to come, you'll just give me an offer on my A-levels. And he looked at me and he said, what? And I went, if you want me to come to your university, he said, give me an offer on my A-levels. I went, why do you not want to do the entrance exam? I went, because I go to a grammar school in Ireland. We're working class. We don't have tutors to teach us for your exam. I know that all these English kids are going to take a year out. They're going to study for your exam. And then they're going to sit the entrance exam after tooling around Europe for the summer, their year out. I said, I don't have that luxury. I'm working class. I have to go to university straight off. It's a not an even playing field. So I'm not doing your exam. And he went, nobody's ever spoken to me like this before. <laughs> Well, there you go. Have you ever met a boy from Belfast before? <laughs> and I thought he was going to tell me to fuck away off into the night. And he went, all right then, but it's going to be a high level. And I went, okay, I don't care about that. Because I didn't care. Because I didn't think it was going to get the results anyway. Yeah. And he made me an offer right there and then on the spot. Wow. On my A-levels. I was thinking, damn. <laughs> so when you say A-levels for an American, that you're great. A-levels are advanced level courses that you do after you... Got it. When you, at the age 17 and 18, you stay on at school if you're going to go to university. That's Got it. It's, it's similar to advanced placement courses. Yes. It, it's probably as similar... You only do like three or four, so it's specialized. So it's probably similar to a first year at, at university here. So your A-levels alone got you into Cambridge, or do you think your A-levels plus that experience talking to... Well, uh, yeah, I had to pass the interview. Yeah. But it was really it was really the interview plus and the fact that they gave me the offer so once and it was two A's and they asked me what he, I said we only know A and, a and B and I went that's fine A's and B's doesn't matter do that and he gave me the offer of two A's and a B and that's when I got so I ended up going damn it <laughs> but you still didn't have to go to Cambridge if you didn't want to no but the social pressure from your family when you get into Cambridge it's like know, getting into Harvard or Yale it here. is it's like getting into Harvard and Yale and I thought ah oh, shoot I'll try it and see so when you learned you were you did really well in that uh, exam oh, yeah. when you were 11 uh, with that knowledge did that help you or did that uh, create such high expectations that it actually maybe hurt you no not at all I didn't give a toss okay I I just wanted to get back to school I mean I was smart enough at that age to know that education was key to not end up in the situation that my parents were Mm. in Um, and that was key to everything and that happened at probably eight or nine years old I was shoved up class after class when I was young and I was submitted for the 11 plus when I was eight and then Mm. I was told no you can't do that so I ended up doing it was 10 but it really, it became ingrained that the way out of poverty was education. Yeah, and that's um, true in most places, right? So I, I knew that at a very young age. The thing about the primary school, it was a good example of it. And I arranged the meeting with the headmaster of the primary school in Scotland. Wow. At 11 years old. And walked in there with my mum. And he turned to her and said, what is it, Mrs. Malloch? And she said, well, actually, it's not me that wants to see you. It's Jimmy, because they called me Jimmy in those days. And he said, what, what is it, son? I went, look, I just need to tell you, I've been told I have to come to your school, and I'm not coming to your school. And he said, but you have to, legally, you have to. I went, no, I know I have to legally, but that doesn't change things. I'm not going to come to your school. And I told him I've been to grammar school, I've done 14 classes. I studied Greek and Latin and French and 14 different subjects. I said, I'm not coming to your school to do reading, writing and arithmetic. 
and he told me he'd have to send the truant officer for me. And I went, okay, so what's he going to do? He said, he's going to bring you to school. And uh, I was so precocious. I said to him, no, I understand that. So the truant officer will come to my house and bring me to school. I said, that's fine. I said, but I couldn't help noticing when I came in here that the doors weren't locked. (laughs) You were quite precocious. I know. And he said, no. I said, so that's fine. The truant officer will bring me in. He'll bring me to class. I said, I'm telling you, as soon as that truant officer leaves, I'm out that door. I said, are you going to call him back every day? And the guy's going, son, you can't do this. You're going to get your mum in trouble. And I'm just telling you how it's going to be. He said, that's what's going to happen if I come to your school. I'm leaving every single day and you're going to have to chase me. And a couple of weeks later, we got a letter in the mail saying, your son can go to the comprehensive school. <laughs> As you should have all along. Indeed. But even that's, the point was, even then, I knew that I couldn't squander education. Mm. And going back to the grammar school in Belfast was key to that. Did you... Uh come by that way of thinking from your siblings or is it just something that organically happened for you? It was really my primary school teachers because mm. we were all working class and I never forget the primary school headmaster. His name was Mr. Mulhall. Um, I remember one anecdote. He told us that one of the kids that had left primary school some years before had gone to university and was now earning £2,000 a year. And that number blew my mind. And I was about eight at the time. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't get my head around what £2,000 a year meant. And I think moments like that in my primary school were key to forming that, that opinion in me that i got to get educated. That's brilliant. Yeah. And it's generational too. So you've impacted it is, it's your kids and your grandkids with that way of thinking. Because I, I was the first one in our family to do that, yeah. And you were the, the fifth of six kids. Yes. Yeah. So your older siblings didn't view the world that way. No. Um, my brother, he left at 16. My sister went and became a nurse. She had a good career. The next one down, Caroline, she turned out to be a very, very successful businesswoman. And she went to school for a while, but then I thought, no, this isn't for me. So she went off and got, um, she went into civil service and then just went into business and made many, many millions of dollars. So she did really well. Uh, but yeah, nobody else did university thing. Wow. All right, let's go back to Huntsville. What was your first year? Being a guy who grew up in the UK, what was that first year like for you? Because you were 31, as you said, right? Yeah, it, it was a wee bit rough, to be honest. I mean, I didn't mind it at all. I settled in. I had work to go to. The first day was a wee bit of a slap in the face. We, it was a rude awakening, day one. And we drove down one of the main streets in Madison, just outside Huntsville is where we lived in Madison, where we ended up living. And so we're Irish Catholics, nothing against religion whatsoever. When it's all there is in a community, that was horrifying to us. There were no shops, there were no bars, there was no stores. There was just mega church after mega church. in the Bible. After mega church. And by the time we got to the end of that three or four mile road, my wife was in tears and she was just going, what the fuck have you done? Yeah, you're on a different planet. And I didn't know what to say to her. And so we didn't know anything about Huntsville. And it was a bit rough getting used to that community. She didn't have a job, so she was at home. I had no, I had no real issues because I loved what I was doing. It was great I, at work. So the first couple of years were a bit rough until we settled in. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you how long it took. 
two, two years. It, it took a while. Is is that two years for your wife? Yeah. Two years for your boys? Um, Jimmy settled in fine. He was, he had a posh English accent. He was a good looking kid. <laughs> he was athletic. Um, both the boys jumped a year because we didn't know how the American system worked. We right. just added one to whatever the year they were in the UK and they ended up a year ahead of where they should be. Um, but he he settled in pretty he was shy and didn't talk a lot, but the girls loved him because they they liked the uh, strong song the English accent, yeah. yeah, and the accent definitely, yeah. especially there. Indeed, um, Connor had a rough time. He he struggled because kids at middle school, must have been elementary school, they made fun of his accent, mm. and Connor was he didn't know how to deal with that. Yeah, so it took him a while to settle in. But he eventually settled in. He did eventually, yeah. Yeah, and they're all American boys now. You know? And you're still there. I can't get over that. I know. Yeah. And, you know, we were there, so we arrived in 92. Mackenzie, our first grandchild, arrived probably four, maybe, genius 13, 18, five years after we got here. As soon as Mackenzie arrived, that's it. We're cemented in Madison. Oh, wow. We have a granddaughter there now. Okay. So we were never leaving. But yeah. eventually they left. Yes. Um, Jamie moved to Birmingham because um, he studied there. And then his job just took him up here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you were already, roots were well Root, into the roots ground. Roots were in Alabama, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a wild story. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of a more different place. It was a culture shock. Absolutely a culture shock. I mean, as much as it would have been if you had moved to Brazil. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> it's, and it, I mean, it, some of it was really lovely, actually. And people are nice, and it's... Um, you always get that. Still to this day, we still get the you're not from around here. <laughs> yeah, you, sorry, we've only been here 31 yeah. years. You, no, no, not from around here. And people are always enchanted by it. So that's nice. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an automatic in to talk and to talk to people. You know, we're Irish. We talk to everybody constantly. You know? I say, that girl at work, the stories I told her, I'm always telling stories and you know, most people just... Don't believe it. Have, have we tapped into the most unbelievable story that she heard that she didn't oh God, believe? Oh, no. <laughs> Can we tell that no, story? No, no, no. Oh, there's lots of them. Um, G- give me one of them. Um, I fell in a bonfire in Scotland. What, is, what does that mean? And literally, I fell in a bonfire. You know what a bonfire is? I, I do. It's not I'm, metaphorical. I'm, I mean, I, literally. I've, I've never seen anybody fall into a bonfire. <laughs> Um, no, I did, um, and it was all that bravado stuff. It was Bonfire Night, which is the fifth of November in Scotland in the UK. It actually celebrates the demise of Guy Fawkes, who was a Catholic trying to undermine the British Protestant Parliament, mm. and they tried to blow up Parliament. He got caught, and his name was Guy Fawkes. So every year in the fifth of November, all across Britain, they burn effigies of Guy Fawkes oh, wow. to celebrate the fact that the Protestant power and was retained in England. <laughs> so yeah, Guy Fawkes night in Scotland and I was um, 11 years old um, daring my mates to run across the bonfire after all the adults had left and I was just being an idiot and of course my mates did the right thing and they said, well, f- you know, you're so keen on this, you do it first. And at that point, I couldn't back down so I ran across the bonfire and I did, did it once. Did you have shoes on? I had shoes on, yeah. And ran across it and made it once and they all cheered. So I thought, that was good. I'll do it again. <laughs> Third time in, I tripped on the way in. Oh. And um, 
and instead of falling flat on my face because I was 11 years old and young and athletic, I caught my foot and some of the some of the debris in the way in and kicked off the back foot, tucked my arms in, did a forward roll, landed on my back and came up onto my feet and came running out the other side again. Wow. God, yes! <laughs> <laughs> It was freaking brilliant. And my sisters came running over and they were patting me in the back. And I thought they were congratulating me for, you know, for the forward roll. But they weren't. They were putting out the flames. And uh, what I thought was a leather jacket turned out to be plastic. Oh, gosh. And it was burning on my back. And then I had to go home and explain to my mum how I got my jacket melted. But it didn't uh, burn your skin. Didn't make contact with anything, not even my hair. The only bit that made contact was the back of my jacket. So were you wild like that all the time? Oh yes, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> give me, you got to give me another one. You know, it, it, well, I mean, it persisted. Um, how stupid do you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how stupid do you feel comfortable sharing on a recording? <laughs> I got into a fight. I got into a fight with um, probably about. 30, 35 Protestant lads one night on my own. That wasn't the brightest moment. You, you didn't intend for that to happen, I imagine. Well, I didn't set out at the beginning of the evening for that to happen, but I definitely took actions that caused it to happen, yeah. Um, yeah, that was not my brightest moment. I was sitting on a bus coming back from Sense House, my uh, future wife. Last bus at night, always a dangerous thing. Mm, it's yeah. never, never the best thing to be doing. But... You know, I wanted to spend as much time as I could with her, so I always got the last bus home. We lived about 30 miles apart. Mm. And I knew this town, and I knew the nightclubs that were there. I was, I was 17. Um, and I knew the kids that got on, and I knew they were Protestant boys, and I knew they were always drunk. So I always sat up near the front of the bus to avoid them. So I did that this night, and there were more of them. There must have been probably 35 of them. And um, they always fill up the bus with the hardest guys at the back and mm-hmm. then the littlest, less hard guys up at the front. Ended up, this kid sat down beside me because they all filled the bus from the back and I could see it happen and I'm thinking, oh Christ, Christ, no, please, don't let it happen. Ends up, they ended up going past me, right? More than this night. And I'm pretending to go to sleep, literally with my head against the glass, pretending to sleep because I didn't want to interact because I knew it wouldn't end well. And this kid elbows me in the ribs and goes, hey, how are you? Uh, yeah, what is it? And he starts asking the questions. And he goes, what school do you go to? You know, so I'm going, I went to Portadown Technical College, which is a neutral college. Catholics yeah. and Protestants go, oh, okay then. What's your favorite football team? So I said, Manchester United any Protestant Catholics could do it. So we had about half a dozen of these questions. And then he stopped because he couldn't think anymore. But by that time, I was so fucking mad that this yeah. kid sitting beside me would be have the audacity to, be to a do jerk. this, to be a dick. Yeah. And I couldn't stop myself. And I just turned to him and said, is that all you got, son? <laughs> and he went, what do you mean? He went, you didn't even ask me my favorite color. Jesus Christ. That could have given it away immediately. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, you didn't ask me what bar my dad drinks at. I said, that was certainly I told you. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. So I said to him, all right, son, this is how it goes. So if you want to know in this country, if somebody is a Catholic or a Protestant, you want me to tell you how to do it? He went, all right, then. I went, this is what you do. You go, hey, you, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? <laughs> <laughs> 
It was right there the whole time. And, I, and he reared up and he smacked me in the mouth with the back of his hand. And um, that was the signal. And I picked him up, threw him across the bus, and I held him down by the throat and I pinned his legs against the, the, the seat. Bearing in mind, he had like 30-odd friends with him. And I didn't hit him. I just held him down by the throat and I taunted him. And I put my head down to him and he would swing for me and I'd pull my head back and go, whoa, you missed. Until eventually, and his friends all laughed. They thought this was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Until he went, get him, he's a fucking fiend, which meant you're a Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, I, I got this stuff and kicked out of me. I had to hit the ground. You're taught when you grow up, and where I grew up, you're taught don't get kicked in the head and don't get kicked in the kidneys. Mm. Otherwise, you can take a beating. So I, that's all I had to do. I had to hit the floor, get my kidneys up against the seat, cover my head, and I let them kick the snot out of me until the bus driver stopped it. And they all came in to get it peace. Oh, yeah. yeah, Just kicking one after the next, stomping on me and beating the shit out of me. The bus driver stopped it because one of the ladies said to him, you've got to stop that. That's an innocent bystander that's getting beaten up. He yeah. thought you were fighting among themselves. Mm. And unbelievably, he hit the brakes, they all fell down, and he got up out of his seat with a baseball bat. I'd never seen a baseball bat in my life. We don't play baseball in America. Yeah. He had a baseball bat. He said, next one touches him, I'm going to knock your block off. So they all sat down. I was so mad at that point that I dragged another one off their seat, threw him onto the floor, stood up on the seat and lectured them about how many Catholics, does, how many Protestants does it take to beat up one Catholic? <laughs> and you're 11? I was 17 at that point. Oh, okay. Yeah. You were older. But I looked oh, like you would see set. Yeah. But I looked like a fourteen-year-old girl. I was a pretty boy. I wasn't in any way intimidating. I looked like a wee girl. Did you have long hair too? Yeah, long hair down my back. Yeah. It was wild. Yeah. So that's one of the more. What's one of the more stupid things that I've done? That's the only time something like that's happened, though. Or have you had similar incidents? That's, that's probably the stupidest thing I've done. Yeah, probably. I think that my favorite part of the story is you lectured them. I mean, that or the, the are you Catholic or Protestant question. <laughs> I mean, I, I lectured them like for four or five minutes. Oh, wow. And told them, any one of you, one at a time, I'll take all of you. One at a time, no more than one at a time. And the biggest guy at the back, he stood up and took his jacket off and he said, start with me. And I screamed at him. I, went, I literally screamed at him and went, who the fuck said you could stand up? Sit the fuck <laughs> down or I will come down and make you do it. And he sat down. <laughs> and at that point, I thought, what must you look like? <laughs> you know, the bravado. I, I know. Uh, well, it's crazy. <laughs> and that kid ended up at Cambridge. I know. <laughs> among all those posh English people. <laughs> but you enjoyed Cambridge itself. I did. I really loved it. Yes, I enjoyed it. I got kicked out at the end of the year. All right, so sorry to bounce around like this. Huntsville, If I've never been to Huntsville. Yeah. What would you tell me to experience if I went to Huntsville? Um, everybody goes to the Rocket Center, and I've been once, and it is spectacular. If you're in any way interested in science, engineering, the scale of what they do is in your face. The mm. design of the rockets and the evolution of the mechanical stuff that they had to do to get to the moon, all of that is on display. It's 50, 54 years ago, too. Yeah, it's remarkable. And you can see it from being basic electromechanical stuff before everything was heavily computerized and if you're in any way an engineer and i'm a civil engineer i love mechanical engineering as well i find that stuff absolutely fascinating 
But Huntsville's grown up a lot. It's got um, an arena. It's got a, a conference center now. There's there's lots to do. They're trying to make it like Austin is in oh, Texas. So like like a creative sort of town. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They're trying to make it creative. Hmm. They've become a bit more liberal in their downtown practices. They've got, you know, they'll close some of the streets at night and let people walk with hmm. purple cups of drink of alcohol yeah. and the like, which they never would have done when we first moved over here. But it's such an international city. It's cosmopolitan. Be- it was, because it's such a science. Yeah, people come in from all over the world. Yeah, and they've yeah. got a big biological center there as well now. Hudson Alpha Biological Research Center. People come in for that. Uh, so it, it's it's really strange in that you've got all that high tech, highly intellectual community, and you move fifteen or twenty miles in any direction, and you're into the south. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're into mega churches and yeah, yeah. farmland. I mean, Huntsville's got its mega churches as well. Yeah, but you're into farmland. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, I mean, that's, those are lovely communities as well, though. I mean, I, I do love wandering. I ride motorcycles a lot and get out into the, the countryside from them. And I, I love mixing with the people there. Mm. They're really charming. And they're, they, in the, out in the rural areas, God, they love the accent. Oh, they, uh, they they've just, only heard it on TV. Yeah. And they, they absolutely love it. So it's a, people are really, really nice to you. you know, it's, it's nice, I have to say. I like it. Are there other Irish in Huntsville? Not many, no. Yeah. No, I know a few, but not many at all. Is there no. at least a good pub? There used to be a really good Irish pub. Um, um, used to go there with a local parish priest, actually. But they, um, it shut down. People tell me there's another one, but I've heard of it, and I don't think it's a bona fide Irish, Irish pub, to be honest. Bona fide meaning the owner's Irish and... Yeah, and proper Irish community. Yeah. There's an English pub. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go in there. <laughs> Even now, <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's stupid. All right, so that's not logical at all. I say my boss is English, my mates at work are English. You know, most of the people I play football with are English, but they have Union Jacks all over it and English symbolism and the like. And it's just hard to take. I, I can't do it. I yeah. just can't do it. I can't do it. And. Uh, yeah, a lot of my football mates have oh, this football game on. We're going to meet down at the um, Rose and Crown, whatever the hell it is, or the Poppy. Oh, the Poppy. The Poppy's a big thing. Don't get me started on the Poppy. Uh, but it's in the name. It's the Poppy Bar. Oh. And I just have to say, have you going, yeah, I'll come meet you. And then they go, where are you meeting? Oh, well, okay, now I'm going to have to pass on that. Yeah. And I just tell them my dad would turn in my grave if I walked into that bar. Just turn into his grave, not my grave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's You're cool. still here. It's weird. It's totally illogical. I struggle to explain it, but we we went and sat outside one day, but it took a lot to do that. We wouldn't go inside. We sat outside to try their fish and chips. Everybody's telling us how great they are, but I can't go back. It's just it's really weird. It, it doesn't. It makes no sense whatsoever. It just. Well, I mean, the way you grew up, it do, actually does make sense. Yeah, that that oppression thing. There's a protest poppy movement. Foot, Irish footballers in uh, England get into trouble because um, there's a couple of them refuse to wear the poppy on the shirt mm-hmm. during that season. I would do the same. You know, I really would. And Or they just stand back from the, the um, moments of silence. And it's not that the original poppy thing was World War One and World War Two. Nobody in Ireland objects to that. They would all, you know, we would even buy poppies when we were young. Because you're commemorating the soldiers that fought in World War One and World War Two, that changed 
after the Irish Troubles. And all of those paratroopers who shot the people in Derry, mm. innocent people, 13 people shot dead, just yeah. brutal killings by the Irish, by the British Army, um, the paratroopers in particular, they were all brought into that whole poppy celebration. And yeah. At that point, all of us Irish nationalists went, nah, 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 poppy's no longer anything that we can support at all. Um, well, the Irish people were murdered. Yeah, so yeah. We, just, we just bailed on that. Can't do it anymore. All right, help me understand Irish names. You you have an easy Irish yes, name. Yes, I do. Uh, but there are some names, when you look at them, you're like, I don't, I don't even know how to begin to pronounce those names. Is, yeah. Is that from Gaelic? It is. It's Gaelic, yeah. So um, even our daughter's name is C-I-A-R-A. And I would say Ciara. Yeah, and Americans never get it. Um, it's Kira. Kira. Uh, it's just two syllables. So it would be K-I-R-A if you were to do it phonetically, I suppose. Yeah. Or K-E-R-A. Americans never get that. But there are other ones, um, like my, we love lots in our family, N-I-A-M-H, N-I-A-M-H. I have no idea how to start that one. It's Neve. <laughs> our Connor's where's the, where's the V? Where's the V? It makes no sense. Our Connor's name is straightforward because we, we, we spelt it the anglicized way. Mm. But Connor's original name in Gaelic would be C-O-N-C-H-O-B-A-R which means nothing to English-speaking people, but it's Connor. <laughs> it's, but it's all from Gaelic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all just comes from Gaelic. And they pronounce those letters differently, clearly. Yeah, completely differently. And the combination of letters they yeah, pronounce yeah. differently. The combinations are all different. Yeah. And we, uh, so that's the thing. And again, that's one of the distinguishing questions. What's your name? If you're Neve, you are 100%. You're never a Neve. You're normally Neve and actually double barrel names. Right. You're 100% Catholic. If you're a Connor, 100% Catholic. Fergal, definitely 100% Catholic. Um, it, it, it's still used, and we still have different names and different sides of the community. James doesn't give you away, though. It does not, yeah. no. James is a neutral name. Yeah. You get that on both sides. Did your parents intentionally name their kids? No, because we weren't conscious of that at that time. Mm. You know, there was, we really weren't conscious of it. We very clearly apart from with Jamie we were supposed to be that conscious of it he was named after me but with Connor and Kira, they were, they were very deliberate selections yeah. of um, Irish names uh, were you not thinking about that when Jamie was born or you, or you knew you were always going to have a, a James to be honest I think we just decided it was going to be named after me mm. yeah and that was it alright well let's end with because uh, we're about an hour ten right now uh, oh wow yeah Time flies. It right? does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me uh, a little bit more about your family. Uh, extended family? No, what? Either one or both. Um, as you know, I got um, I five siblings um, in my immediate family. They're all over the world. Um, Caroline is retired, not really retired. She was the publican, so she made her money in bars. Still lives in Florida, but she lives wherever she wants to live, basically. Maureen is in Germany. She's got um, kids. She married a black guy from Florida who was a musician. And they're living in Germany now. Um, she's in Germany. Yeah, they're in Germany now. But they've bounced around between Germany and Florida. He was a musician. He, uh, he toured with the likes of Stevie Nicks and Joe Walsh and folks like that. That's pretty On cool. the fringes of fame. Yeah, yeah. But never enough to make any money. Yeah. My sister Frances, she lives in England. Um, sister Margaret lives in a farm in Ireland. Okay. Uh, she settled down there many, many years back. 
Um, my own kids, you know Jamie well. He's a mathematician and freak. Yeah. Freak. Crazy. Yeah, smart. Yeah. Crazy smart. But I really, I love the fact that Jamie's not in your face smart. Oh, you have to know him for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the fact that he's athletic. Um, having him really young was brilliant. And people say, was that not really hard? And I go, no, no, it was fucking awesome. Yeah. Because we grew up together and we just did what we, we made sure we didn't stop our lives when we had Jamie. We insisted upon both going to university. I, I managed to talk her into a university in Edinburgh without her ever having an interview and without being qualified for it. I got her in place in Edinburgh so that we could live together. I, I could talk to people. But, you know, growing up with him was wonderful. I got to play football with him like seven seasons in a row. Oh, that's The highest awesome. level of football in Huntsville on the same team. You, you probably were the two best footballers in the area. We were definitely... Jamie was certainly one of the best. I, I, I'm not as good a footballer as he is. But I was good enough where we were both selected to go on to an Alabama representative team to go play in a regional tournament. Oh, that's cool. You know, so we, we did that together, which was good fun. Um, so, yeah, Jamie's smart-ass, but nice. <laughs> Connor's only ambition at school, because Connor's six years younger, and when he went to high school here... He was constantly, as soon as the name was mentioned, oh, you're Jamie's little brother, we expect great things from you. Ugh. And that was terrible for him. Yeah, It's hard being the second kid. Yeah, so he, he struggled with that expectation level. Um, and his only ambition was to score at least the same as Jamie did in ACTs, and he beat him by one. <laughs> so he's, he's brilliant too. He's clever, but he's not um, in any way. I, he doesn't, he doesn't want to be... Um, he's not as hardworking as Jamie would be. Super high aptitude, but maybe... Exactly like me, actually. Really, really clever, but couldn't give it to us, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's Jamie. And Kira's, um, Kira's a lovely lass. She's um, very uh, into humanitarian stuff. We took her to Mexico when she was like eight years old and very deliberately took her into um, small towns with just locals in them, no glass in the windows. I didn't want her, having been born in America, growing up thinking that America was normal. Mm. So we very deliberately exposed her to international travel from she was a very young child and made her understand that she was privileged mm. and that 95% of the world isn't like this. That, that's brilliant. So she grew up with a very humanitarian streak in her and a very liberal streak. Good, for you. To, Good for you and, and sent in her daughter. So she wanted to work for non-profits and to help people, and, um, and it's, it's lovely. That's that's what she's done most of her career here so far. That's so yeah, we've been delighted. They, they worked out well. That's awesome. Uh, where's Connor live now? Connor lives in Maine. He was moved to Maine. He got married last year. Uh, Is she from Maine? His she's wife? from Venezuela. Venezuela. Why yeah. Maine? Her job. Okay. Yeah, so he's moved up there. And Kira is? In D.C. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. She ended up working as a consultant for Ernst and Young, of all things. She just, again, she's very clever. She's not even qualified for that job, but because she was good at what she was doing, yeah, she just ended up. They recruited her as a consultant. People you know, love hyper experts. They they like people like clever people. There's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. and um, it it sounds awful, but it runs in the family. It's, <laughs> we were playing a game last. It doesn't run in my family. We were playing a game last night, and it's know your family. And um, Brendan, I think Brendan is the smartest of us all. Jimmy's okay. Jimmy's boy Brendan. Yeah, he's a pain in the arse. He's so damn clever. 
oh my god and he was asked what is the thing you most admire or you most thankful for about your dad and we all had to guess what it was it was genetics (laughs) 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 which i thought was great and absolutely correct Uh, oh man so you told me before we started recording, I think, uh, or maybe right at the beginning, that you're going to retire soon. Yeah. What's your What's retirement going to be like for you? You think? Um, ride motorcycles more. Okay. Fix my bikes. Fix cars. I like old cars. I love speed. I'm an adrenaline junkie. Even now. Yeah, I just bought a just bought a 217 horsepower motorcycle this week. It does 187 miles per hour. You're going to take it up to 187. I've seen 187 on a motorcycle once. I've seen 173 on a Ducati. I probably won't take it to 187, but I'll certainly take it over 150, 160. Yeah, yeah Americans don't have a real... NASCAR's a thing, but there aren't that many NASCAR drivers yeah. uh, in the world. Uh, you've been on the Autobahn in Germany? Yeah, yeah. I've only been on it one time, and I was in the middle lane of three lanes. The yeah. right lane is going at speed, what, what yeah. I would consider yeah. at speed, roughly yeah. 65 miles an hour. I was going probably 90, 95 miles per hour. I don't remember the kilometers per hour in the Audi rental car I was yeah. in. I had the kilometers per hour, but I had done the conversion in my head. And the first time a car passed me in the left lane, I didn't understand what was happening. Yeah, it's... It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's... I, I, I can't fathom 187 miles per hour. I, I just can't. It's, it's remarkably undramatic, actually. Any, anything goes wrong, though. Anything. Yeah, but you don't think like that. Okay. You just, you I just, guess you can't. Yeah, you just you just do it. Yeah, you asked what's the stupidest thing I've done. I'll give you a couple of examples. I've probably on a motorcycle actually. I've driven or ridden on the interstate at night. Actually, my wife's going to hear this. <laughs> you don't have to tell the story. <laughs> at 130 mile an hour in conditions that were so bad that the 18 wheelers were parking under the underpasses in the rain because the rain was that heavy yes uh scent has known you a long time since we were 17. So, yeah. would she be surprised by that not at all no. yeah okay no. <laughs> <laughs> what, what made you do that most people would stay at home i, I don't know just i have a different reaction i have a different reaction to the thought of danger to most people i was on a plane once uh, there's an illustration we're way over one hour we were fun we were i was on a plane once coming from amsterdam to atlanta and we got an announcement we noticed the staff were running up and down running just panicking and we'd just been given dinner their first meal and i wasn't eating because i'd eaten um and they were on the phone back and forward running up and down and then the pilot came on and said uh that they were going to land in Shannon Airport. I've been to Shannon, yeah. They said, we've got indication that there's a fire in the hold. We have to get to the ground as quickly as possible. So buckle up. It's going to be a drop and we'll drop 10,000 feet very, very quickly. And as soon as we can touch down, he said, we're going to be stopping very, very quickly. He said, the brakes will go on fire. There'll be fire engines. He said, but we're going to get you on the ground as quickly as possible. Do everything we can to keep you safe. Lady beside me starts freaking out. But the whole plane was probably freaking out. My reaction was, this is going to be so much fun! <laughs> and I'm literally going, yes, this is going to be a blast. Oh you're, my God. You're the kid who wanted to take on 30-some 
Well, indeed, yeah. yeah, same thing. And I had the, I looked at the lady beside me, and she was about to freak out. And I'm going, look, love, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. I said, have you ever been to Disneyland? And she's going, yeah. I said, this is going to be just like a roller coaster. <laughs> I said, people pay to do this stuff. You're going to love it. Money. You're going to love it. <laughs> We caused the fire. Did y'all ever find out? It was a um, false alarm. They had an indication of it, oh, and it wasn't actually a fire. But you know, they had their band in the plane and in uh, Shannon for a while. Wow! And another instance, and this one's terrible. I do, I do feel guilty for this. My sister-in-law, Jacinta's sister Joanne, she was in that terrorist attack in the mall in um, not Uganda, Nigeria. Cynthia mm-hmm. and I were on a motorcycle trip at the time, and. We got home after a long day trip with a bunch of other bikers, turned on the TV in the motel, and this news came up about that mall in, um, where's it, Nairobi? I think it was Nairobi, it Kenya. Might Nairobi, yeah. And Arsent turned to me and said, Our Joanne's that mall, get on the phone and find out what's going on. And I went, Don't be daft, you don't know where she is. And she went, I'm telling you, Jim, she was at that mall. Find out what's going on, get on the phone. And I just laughed at her and said, Sid, you're being ridiculous. She's a, he said, she works in that city. She's in the mall. She was, turned out she was right. And she, you know, Joanne was in the mall and she was caught in the middle of it. Mm. And uh, she'd been trained by her company uh, what to do. And they told her, something like that happens, everybody's going to go for the exits. Don't do that. That's where the terrorists will go. Maximum damage. Find a small place that can be locked. Lock it. And wait. We will call you. Our security staff will come get you. So when uh, Joanne was telling us about this, and she had to hide in a jewelry or a foreign exchange, and the guys did come to the uh, the terrorists did come there and tried to talk them to come out, and she was hearing people being shot, bombs going off, and the people with her wanted to go out. She had to physically restrain them, and had she let them go, they would have been killed. Yeah. When she told us this, I made the mistake of saying, "Geez, that must have been great." <laughs> and Sint just looked at me and went, "Are you fucking nuts?" Are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? I was going, do you know, I'm just a little bit jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is the guy that raised Jamie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I do feel a bit guilty for that because it was traumatic. It was psychologically damaging. Oh, she probably has PTSD to this day. I would have loved it. <laughs> <laughs> like PTSD wouldn't be a thing for you. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's mental. <laughs> Skydiving, right, motorcycle, yeah. whatever. So, yeah, that's, yeah. that's me, unfortunately. Well, Jim, I'm glad you were in town and you could do this. I told Jamie a couple of years ago I wanted to get you on. And, he uh, said that, yeah. Yeah, and it's finally happened. Yeah. It's, well, thank you for doing it. It's, no, been an, it's been an experience. It's been fun. And just anybody who's listening, I want to tell you, all of this is true. I know you'll be, <laughs> I know you'll be skeptical. My, even my niece went and told her mother that Uncle Jim's a pathological liar. <laughs> And her mum said, tell me what you tell me. And she said, oh, no, that's true. I was there for that one. That one's definitely true. And finally convinced her it was all true. You don't have to be a pathological liar no. to, to live the life you've lived. <laughs> it's been fun. I have a wonderful life. I have wonderful kids. You know who my best friend is? Who? Have a guess. Your wife? My wife is my best friend. Yeah. Has been my best friend since I was 17 years old. That's I awesome. Never, I never told you the story of how we met. Maybe we can do that another no, time. No, go do it now. That's Seriously? Fine. I've got another thing at 1 o'clock, but we're good for now. Yeah. You want to hear this one? Sure. I just crashed my dad's car, right? <laughs> Not the best way to start the day. And it wasn't a big crash, but it, is, it was the first car he owned 
that was a reliable car. It was only two years old. It was a tiny wee car, but he loved it. It was his pride and joy. He was in the passenger seat at the time. Mm. Things were not good in the house that night. No. And my little sister, two years younger, had a school disco on that night. So my mom was trying to get me to chaperone her. And I didn't want to go to the disco because I thought they were all kids. And I was above that. I wasn't going to do that. But my dad was so foul that finally I went, okay, I'm go- I'll take her. So I took my daughter, my, uh, my little sister to the disco. And I was, I was a bit of a dick. I was an arrogant little dick. I was standing at the side pretending not to be at all interested and trying to be aloof. And there were two chairs beside me, two empty chairs. And Jacinta came walking towards me. She'd had a few drinks, she, so she didn't even see me. Um, and she was with two friends. And honestly, I remember it so clearly. She was wearing black cords and a, this little pink V-neck jumper with pink and white stripes across it. And I just looked at her and thought, good God, she is stunning. I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen a girl that beautiful in my life. And um, I had never asked a girl out, ever. I was an arrogant little tosser. I had sisters older than me. They brought girls around all the time, (laughs) you know, and I'd never had to ask a girl out. I'd always had to say yes or no. So I was, that was a dick. I saw this girl walking towards me and I was just smitten. And she went to sit down beside me. This is before the Me Too movement. You must remember that. <laughs> Different era. This is a long time ago. And before she could sit down, I slid down onto the seat that she was going to sit on. So she sat on my knee and immediately tried to get back up. And I locked my arms around <laughs> her and wouldn't let her get back up. And I wouldn't let her get up until she gave me a kiss. <laughs> Which she did after telling me to fuck off, leave me alone. <laughs> but she did give me a kiss. And then I asked her to dance. She did. And then she left me and said she was going to the bathroom. She never came back. But I knew a guy at the disco had spotted him, a guy I used to go to school with. I found him and I described her and said, you've got to help me find this girl. And if you find her, stick your hand in the air, tell me where you are and I'll come get her. (laughs) So we find her. And I went along and found her again and said, back from the bathroom then? And she went, oh my God. (laughs) You told me you were coming back. And she says, look, I've got my boyfriend or I've got a date with a guy in the door. His name was Michael Battersby. She said, I've got a date with him. i got to go. And I went, no, 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 you're staying with me. And she went, I've got to go. And I said, does he go to your school? And she said, yeah. I went, you know you're going to see him tomorrow? And she went, yeah. I said, if you don't stay with me tonight, you might never see me again. And she went, okay then. That line worked? <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Three kids, five grandkids, and a, a great grandkid. So she later. had to go to the door and tell the guy, sorry, Michael, we're not on tonight. Oh. Um, I've met somebody else. <laughs> and uh, we arranged to meet the following Thursday at the Ashburn Club in Lurgan in uh, Northern Ireland. And I didn't know she'd show up. Yeah, We didn't have a phone. I, we didn't have a phone. So I went along to the Ashburn and she was there. And She's was the first and only woman you've ever asked out? The only woman I've ever asked out, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and she's been my best pal ever since. That's awesome. That's a great story in doing. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, Jeff. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.